Hello, and welcome to How Books Are Made, a podcast about the art and science of making books. I'm Arthur Atwell. As a child in a small country town, visiting the library was one of my most wonderful outings. I'm sure many of us have memories like that. It's no wonder libraries have been called palaces for the people. Of course, as a white kid in the 80s, I had access to those palaces that most of my fellow South Africans did not. And many of us have grown up taking them for granted. And that is very dangerous, because we don't fully appreciate their value and their importance. They provide so much more than paper books. They provide access to the internet, training, all kinds of social services, and a welcoming place to learn and to feel safe, often from very real dangers. Making libraries accessible and useful to everyone is critically important work. And you'd think that publishers, as book people, would be their greatest champions. Weirdly, that's not always the case. Money-minded publishing folk worry that libraries reduce book sales, especially when they provide e-books to their patrons. They wonder, what effect do libraries have on book sales? Thankfully, there are people who can answer that question with confidence, and one of them is someone I've long admired for his work in the bookmaking world. Guy Charles Gonzalez is Chief Content Officer at Library Pass, and till recently ran the Panorama Project, which measures the impact that public libraries have on reading and on book sales. Before that, he worked in a range of publishing and marketing roles and ran a wonderful bookmaking conference called Digital Book World. He has a sharp eye for lazy thinking and that rare ability to grasp both the big picture and the tiny details that make it up. Guy, I am so excited to be talking to you at last. I have followed your work since Digital Book World days, so I'm really chuffed that you're here. Thanks for joining me. appreciate the invite. I am thrilled to join you. I was going through everything you've been working on over the last, well, many, many years in all different capacities and poetry and magazines and comics. You ran a very successful digital publishing conference. And for the last couple of years, you've been working mostly with libraries. I really don't even know where best to kick off exactly. But since you just started in a new role, and it's all about comics, I believe, that sounds too good to be true. How are you settling in at Library Pass and what are you enjoying the most? Yeah, so Library Pass is kind of a unique opportunity that combines a few really cool things personally. So um, our main product is Comics Plus, which is a digital collection of comic books. It previously existed as a consumer product, um, but Library Pass is a new company, kind of acquired the product and has repositioned it specifically for the library market. So it's been fascinating to A, be able to stay within the library world, to join a company whose business model is explicitly built around affordable access to digital content through an unlimited simultaneous access model. It's focused initially on comics, which is you know a personal interest of mine from way back as a kid being into comics in later in adult years, coming back to comics. I had a side gig for a little while where I was the, the executive editor of a comic book website. So being able to kind of 
combine libraries and comics is a really cool opportunity. Plus, I'm reuniting with my former boss at Library Journal, Ian Singer, who's also a good personal friend. You know, coming off Panorama Project, which when I first took that over, felt like, oh, this is the dream. Can it get any better? This is kind of, okay, the way to make it even better would be to go work for a company doing the things that I've personally believe are the right ways to engage and support libraries and reach readers. So yeah, I mean, it's been a month that I've been with them full time. They were a client for a few months prior to that, where I was just helping them get uh, some of their backend systems set up. So it's been really great to make that transition uh, full time and really get to dive in and work with this great content, engage with libraries, not just as an advocate or intermediary, but now I'm working directly with them to support their efforts to connect readers to great content. Fantastic. I, I want to dig in a little bit there around digital content and libraries. I think in the last few years, the idea that libraries are just for paper books has been widely debunked, <laughs> thank goodness. But, you know, let's go there just in case. Can you tell me a bit about how libraries do provide digital content and services? So digital uh, content and services have been part of uh, most libraries' offerings for many years. I mean, back in, flashback 10 years ago to the first digital book world, that first year, libraries weren't on the agenda at all. Um, not that libraries weren't dealing with ebooks and digital content, but from digital book world's perspective, they just weren't part of the conversation. And there was a notorious presentation at the 2009 Tools of Change conference where a librarian, uh, Katie Dunback, did a demo of the like, I think it was 25 or 27 steps to check out an ebook from the library through Overdrive. Wow. And this was the friction that publishers loved. You know, <laughs> and it became a joke for a long time about, you know, th this is what it takes to get an ebook from the library. And you couple that with, well, between the internet and the Kindle, why do we even need libraries anymore? What do libraries offer? Almost always talked about from by people who hadn't engaged with the library in years or, you know, lived at a certain economic threshold where the value of a library was kind of invisible to them mm. because beyond content, you know, libraries became really community social support services. So things like getting passports and tax information and even learning how to use your brand new Kindle, wow. all of those things became part of what libraries offered. But from a digital perspective, whether it's access to databases, literal access to the internet because you don't have it at home, magazine collections, Ebooks are part of a really bigger picture when it comes to digital content. And you know, what's interesting, I think, is sometimes publishers lose sight of that, that they're not the only player in the game when mm -hmm. it comes to libraries. And you know, the whole debate around pricing of ebooks always kind of loses. There's other places libraries spend their money on digital content. You push that envelope too far, you're not just going to lose out to other publishers with better pricing, you're going to lose out to other digital content products with better pricing. And for someone who's never used a digital product from a library, are, are these digital products being used in the library on premises, as it were, or from home, but logging into your local library? Both. So historically, uh, it was initially in the library. And then over the years, as libraries built out their online services so that people didn't have to necessarily come into the branch to take advantage of the different things the library had to offer, 
almost every library offers online access to all of their digital content, either through their own websites directly or through uh, relationships with digital content providers where the authentication process, you're going directly to that product, but you're using your library uh, login, whether it's your library card or some other authentication method. And so that support is coming through the library, even if it's a platform outside of the library's website. You mentioned publishers. So the role you just left was at the Panorama Project, where you tackled one of the elephant in the room questions of publishing, which is what effect do libraries have on book sales? And why was that an important question to answer? So two things. I mean, there's been the historical publishers' discomfort with library ebooks because long time ago, there was a piracy concern, which you know, vendors like Overdrive were able to address. One of the interesting things in that first Digital Book World conference, Brian Napak from Macmillan did a whole presentation around how Macmillan was going to tackle piracy. And one of the unspoken things in his presentation that was kind of well-known in the industry was one of the biggest sources of piracy were, you know, the killers in the house. It was people sending out the PDFs of ARCs to their <laughs> friends that then found their way onto pirate websites. It wasn't actually someone breaking the DRM on a consumer ebook mm. that was driving piracy. So there's always been this concern that uh, the availability of ebooks through the library and the increasing lack of friction as the platforms got better. Uh, Overdrive's Libby app is arguably one of the slickest reading apps in the marketplace. People love it more than they love their Kindle app in some cases. Hmm. So that lack of friction and more importantly, the consumer demand for ebooks through the library have driven up circulation. And that's led to some publishers questioning that impact on consumer sales. Uh, I think it was 2015 when traditional publisher ebook sales kind of plateaued and then started mm. kind of this gentle decline. There were big predictions for years that ebooks were going to take over the world. Yeah. Print is dead. Uh, traditional publishing is dead. And the future is, you know, self publishing, digital publishing, and farewell print. Uh, fast forward to 2020. Even before the pandemic, which has had an interesting, really interesting impact on print sales that I don't think most people would have expected. But even prior to the pandemic, print has been chuggling along just fine mm. uh, in some areas growing in certain categories, particularly among younger readers, while ebooks were, you know, steady. And then audiobooks were the new big thing that were getting the hockey stick growth. So some publishers, though, have always suspected that ebook lending was a negative for consumer sales, despite consumer research that has suggested otherwise, um, that library users are also active buyers. Libraries are a key point of discovery for titles that, you know, there's the best sellers that everybody knows about. And that's, let's, let's charitably say 5% of the output every year, probably less than that. That's 95% of books that get published every year that the average reader never knows about yeah. because it doesn't get the big marketing push. If it doesn't get the book, big marketing push, bookstores aren't putting it on their shelves. They're certainly not putting it on a front table featuring it. So then you've got Amazon, you've got libraries. And if you're a really good publisher, maybe you have your own website and online initiatives that are driving awareness for those books. 
So there's no there's no actual public data that supports the belief that libraries cannibalize sales, but Macmillan in particular not only was the publisher with the strongest belief, they conducted allegedly an experiment with Tor to measure that impact that they then claimed they saw a negative impact on consumer sales and then decided last summer to turn this into a company-wide policy where they were going to embargo the availability of new ebooks to libraries for the first eight weeks. Hmm. And the assumption there was, A, it says a lot about publishers' marketing perspective when it comes to new books. If eight weeks is the window you're giving books to maximize their consumer sales, and then this supposed cannibalization channel can kick in, it says a lot about that bestseller mentality, about front list versus back list. You know, technically, front list is it was published in the past year. Macmillan's definition of front list clearly is two months, and then we're <laughs> moving on to the next book. So, being able to answer those questions about what is the actual impact libraries are having when there's not a good faith, transparent public conversation about that impact. That's where Panorama really came in and needed to dig into first as a data-driven initiative before I joined. And then the realization there was publishers are never going to share that data with each other, partly for competitive reasons and partly for legitimate concerns about collusion. You know, got bit once on that. Sure. But in some ways, I think the competitive aspect is even more important for them because you look at a, a PRH, you know, the biggest publisher in the U.S., I'd put them in the middle when it comes to library terms, but I put them at the top when it comes to advocating for libraries and, you know, putting their money where their mouth is in terms of no restrictive policies, in terms of embargoes, not the best pricing. You know, I don't think they're librarians favorite, but they're definitely not the worst, but they have, you know, a robust library marketing system. They have a robust consumer marketing uh, infrastructure. So they have a lot of research and data that some of their competitors don't because they're just not as well resourced Mm. or they don't prioritize it. And so I always look at them as an interesting reference point. Well, if PRH, the biggest publisher, isn't out there saying libraries are cannibalizing sales, maybe there's some other factors here that need to be looked at. And so that's where Panorama kind of pivoted from, all right, we're not going to try and create this big data repository and do deep dive analysis. We're going to try and change the conversation and try and bring the industry to the same table, start having the same conversation instead of talking past each other, and start to find some baseline areas of agreement that we can then build from. So that's where the immersive media research came from. That's where the library marketing valuation toolkit came out of, where that enables libraries to actually put a literal monetary value on everything they do in support of a book. If you were doing this with the local bookstore or a local media outlet, this would have cost you X. That's valuable information, A, for libraries to properly value what they do, And even more so than publishers, personally, I think it's valuable information for authors and agents to know because most authors and agents have zero understanding about how libraries work. Any interview with an author, there's usually some throwaway line about their love for libraries and Mm -hmm. some formative experience they had with libraries. Uh, But at the end of the day, they don't control their publishers' lending policies, the pricing terms. 
So authors understanding, hey, this library in the Midwest, in one event you did with them, contributed $18,000 of marketing value. How does that equate to your overall marketing program? I guarantee you there's no publisher spending $18,000 on a single event in the Midwest for a debut uh, novelist. Yeah. So that's the kind of data that absent the big data-driven initiative that Panorama initially envisioned, we pivoted to let's help libraries at an individual level establish their own value. So initiatives like that, the goal was if we can kind of make some headway there, that changes the conversation a little bit, that puts some data in the public sphere that then can be countered. Mm -hmm. And at that point, then, you know, Macmillan, you want to continue to say libraries cannibalize sales. Here's hard data. Where's your data yep. that says otherwise? You know? If I'm if I've published a book, I'm a publisher of any size really, but certainly smaller than PRH, you know, mid-size. <laughs> and I I want to work with libraries because I could see that perhaps there's this marketing potential that libraries can be another place to show off my books. What are some of the concrete things I can do? What does collaboration with libraries look like on the ground? So I, I think if you're you're not one of the big five, it's very different because partly libraries, especially when it comes to digital content, but even print, they're first and foremost driven by consumer demand. Mm. They are stewards of taxpayer money. So they can't just randomly buy whatever books they personally think are cool. So it comes back to a marketing challenge. As an individual publisher, no matter your size, I mean, even the big five struggles with this with their mid-list and debut authors. Mm. First and foremost, you have to build an audience for that book. And if you can build that audience, libraries then become an amplification tool, mm. but they're not just going to buy your book. You know, libraries aren't you know, warehouses for you know, wayward books that have no audience. <laughs> There sure. still needs to be an audience for that book. So what I've always recommended, particularly to small and mid-sized publishers, is you know, you're not going to compete with the big five when it comes to national marketing. Bestseller lists are big drivers of library acquisition. Pre-publication marketing is a big driver of library acquisition because it generally predicts bestsellers. So where you uh, have an opportunity to squeeze in is at the local and regional level. Mm. You know, focus on you know, wherever you are, you've got a regional group of libraries. There are state library associations that you can focus on if you want to focus on a single state. It partly depends on your publishing operation. Um, nonfiction in a lot of ways is maybe better suited to engage libraries directly. But one of the things at Panorama, we did some research around library events. And the assumption is, oh, you know, you know, only the big authors who get put on national tours get to do readings and stuff. And that's not true. Those are the ones who get to do the national tours. Mm. But locally speaking, if libraries depended only on the big national tours, they'd only put a handful of events on a year. Right. So what our research showed was less than half of library events feature these national, nationally known authors or current bestsellers. They're predominantly, I think the number was about 70% of their authors are local wow. within their region. And so particularly libraries who see programming as a really valuable part of their services, they are relying on local authors who, A, they don't have to fly in and put up in a hotel, right. who ideally have some relevance to the community. 
And so that's where nonfiction potentially is a stronger angle. But even as a novelist, if you're a local novelist, that's an angle. And you don't have to be, people assume, oh, well, that's only for self-published authors. No, because again, unless you're the big five A-list author, you might as well be a self-published author. A lot of the, a lot of the engagement that's going to drive your book is going to come from your own efforts. Yeah. So whether you're a small publisher or an individual author, you know, start with those local and regional libraries, prove that there's an audience for your book. If there's not, start super local yeah. and say, the audience for my book is here in town. Help me build it. Yeah. And most libraries are happy to support the truly local author because they're part of the community. Now, the assumption there is you are part of the community. Mm -hmm. You are an active user or supporter of the library. What I've seen too many authors do is, yeah, I, I can't get any uh, attention from my librarian. They don't have a library card. They've never attended any events at the library. <laughs> you know, you, you yeah. check their social media feed a few years back. They were probably one of the ones saying, why do we even need libraries anymore? Kindle is the future. So when you want something from someone, general rule is, you know, what are you giving back to them? Right. Are you part of the same community or are you engaged in the same way? So that for me is kind of the best reference point for small and mid-sized publishers. Yeah. Start at the local regional level, find that local regional hook, whether it's literally the author is from that area or there's something relevant about the book that ties into that community and work on individual relationships. You know, your wholesaler is not going to push you over the big five bestsellers. Mm. You know, sorry, they are a distribution channel that will be leveraged through your own efforts. Yeah, you know, the, the community spirit that seems to be so obvious in the libraries that I know, my local library here is so wonderful and affirming. It seems kind of crazy to me that I'm seeing so much work being done in defense of libraries at the moment, which seems kind of tragic. Because questioning the value of libraries seems about as crazy as questioning hospitals or schools. And uh, I guess as a tech digital person, I wonder sometimes if this ubiquitous commodified digital content we're surrounded with has created a sort of unfounded but real prejudice against libraries as if we don't need them anymore because everything's free now and right in front of us. Am I imagining it? Is this prejudice against libraries real? I think it's definitely real. And it, it comes, at least you know, from a US perspective, I think it comes from a couple of different angles. There are the people who don't need a library. They are financially well off. They buy whatever books or information they need. They may or may not be good at research. Here in the US, we've seen the downside of digital illiteracy really being played out. Mm -hmm where anybody can put information out there and be a trusted source, yep. even if there's no credibility uh, to that trust. So there's an aspect of negativity towards libraries that comes from, well, you know, I don't need them, so why does anybody need them? You know, it's that kind of personal benchmarking. Mm. The other side of it is a more cynical recognizing who does benefit from libraries and frankly, just not believing they're important. Right. Yeah. You know? So, you know, if you're too poor to have internet access, you're not even on my radar. So, you know, libraries by definition are less important if you don't even recognize the value of the part of your community who does rely on the library mm. for a variety of uh, sources. And then you get the, I think the tech perspective, you know, that kind of 
Bigfoot into a space, disrupt everything. Tech is the solution to all problems. I think we're finally, I hope, starting to see the downside of that magical thinking. Mm-hmm. You know, you look at Facebook. What's the joke? It was, you know, Zuckerberg. It was his way to uh, find women to date <laughs> and has turned into this global disruption machine, yeah. you know, that drives disinformation and political upheaval. So, there, you know, the downsides of tech, I think people are starting to finally recognize. And the advantages of libraries. I think one of the interesting things here during the pandemic is what was deemed essential and not essential and where you know libraries, which every year have to fight for their funding and justify their existence, suddenly got deemed super essential and we got to reopen the libraries at any cost. Hmm. So it, it's always fascinating. You know, same thing's happening with schools and teachers. Teachers hmm. get dumped on left and right but suddenly reopening schools is one of the most important things we can do. <laughs> Teachers are valuable. Yeah. Let's just forget this conversation when it comes time to renew those contracts. <laughs> <You know? laughs> and, and then switching a little back to the publishing side of the conversation. 10 years ago, you gave a talk at Digital Book World, that really popular conference that you organized, on the very day that the iPad was announced. And you said that day that publishers needed to focus on their job and that the iPad wasn't going to change the fundamental issues that publishers face. And at the time, I'm not sure what I would have thought of that, but I really think now that that's turned out to be very true. How do you see it now looking back 10 years later? Yeah, that. so I mean, that whole day was fascinating because uh, we literally at the last minute juggled the program a little bit to open time for Jobs's uh, announcement because that was the anticipation you know the level of anticipation around that iPad announcement was so out of bounds i mean it literally was being pitched as the savior of publishing and not just books mm. you know the magazine industry was all over it yeah and you know i i've always seen myself as kind of never an early adopter but always interested in what's coming. So I don't jump on the new thing immediately, but I poke around out of curiosity. So for me, it was clear that, you know, even the premise of digital book world, which was a little too ebook centric for my tastes. And one of the first external things I wrote while I was running digital book world, I think was for publishing perspectives where I said E is for experimentation, not eBooks. Mm. Because for me, you know, the underlying issues were the business model, the shift to, okay, you think the iPad is going to change the future. Have you not paid attention to the iPhone? It's games. It's social. Like your, your 999 eBook is competing with 99 cent Angry Birds. <laughs> and you think this is going to significantly change your fortunes? Magically, and without you changing anything structurally. Mm. You know, F&W was the uh, company behind Digital Book World. And our initial foray into ebooks was awful. It was outsourced to India as cheap as possible, convert them with no QA because nobody cares about quality. They just want it on their device. Yep. And that didn't work out so well. You know, there, there was the initial hockey stick because we went from zero to a little bit. So that's, you know, exponential growth. But it quickly started to tail off because the quality was awful. Mm. And F&W wasn't unique in that. There was this kind of rush into cheap conversion, get them on the devices, make the money and figure it out as we go. 
So I think the iPad in retrospect, we, we saw what it was. It, it's a consumption device that games were the first. Video streaming wasn't really a thing yet in 2010. It was kind of in the background. I think Netflix was still predominantly a DVD mailing company. Yeah, Their streaming offering was just getting off the ground. So you fast forward to today, iBooks is, you know, whatever, it's there. Kindle still dominates everything as everybody predicted. Mm -hmm. Barnes and Noble struggled with their ebook devices. Mm -hmm. They went all in on the Nook, arguably to the detriment of the entire company for years. Mm -hmm. All that investment in Nook, none of that investment went into their online interface. So BN.com suffered and lagged behind Amazon for years because the iPad was the savior. And so we all need our own iPad. Yeah, I don't know if you remember the the failed devices. I can't even remember some of the names. So many. Hearst was building their own e-paper thing that was going to be, you know, the Kindle for newspapers. So yeah, this obsession with devices that ignored business model and consumer behavior in some ways continues. You know, you go back to Macmillan and their belief about libraries and e-books. Some of that is you're fighting consumer behavior. Mm. If consumers are demanding ebooks and they're choosing the library to access them, that's not library's fault. You're you're mad at your consumers. You should be happy consumers still want to read your books. And so you've got a business model problem. How do I continue to make money in this channel when a lot of my readers are choosing the you know free in quotes? option, which always needs to be caveated with tax money paid for those books. Publishers get revenue from library books with publishers restrictions around expiring terms. There was a library in the Pacific Northwest. I forget uh, which one. I was at a conference earlier this year and they said 25% of their 2019 ebook budget went to repurchasing expired licenses. Wow. So you get into this, okay, you're having trouble selling new books. You're always competing against an expanding backlist. And now you've added a layer of your really popular books are cannibalizing your less popular books because you're forcing libraries to repurchase those licenses, which means less money for them to buy your new content. Mm. So you compound that every year. If every year a library is spending 25% of their budget to repurchase licenses for popular stuff, you're, you're limiting your ability to generate revenue. Yeah. And then for me, the other question is, why are people choosing the library for your eBooks? Is it the price of your consumer eBooks? You know, you, you fought for agency and won, yeah. and your sales immediately started to decline. So maybe again, it's not library's fault. They're not cannibalizing sales. You are driving your consumers to a different channel. Mm-hmm. And that's a purposeful choice in a lot of ways. So for me, that that's a reflection of the iPad. The iPad was perceived as a savior rather than a challenge to the business model. Library ebooks to me are by some publishers perceived as an enemy rather than a challenge to the business model. Yeah, yeah, that's fascinating. One thing that really stands out to me when I look across everything you've worked on is how so much of your work has been in support of others, a specific kind of role from organizing poets 15, 20 years ago to supporting writers at Pop Culture Shock and Writers Digest to the focus on practicality, not punditry, in quotes, at Digital Book World. So I, I love that you get excited about supporting others' success and celebrating it. Who do you admire right now for 
taking a smart opportunity or being brave or doing really important work? <sighs> so, yeah, I was giving this some thought. I, I think one company that continues to pop up for doing interesting things and really not getting a lot of credit for it because they're not focused on bestsellers and that's what the media likes to talk about uh, and they're not doing new shiny stuff is Open Road. So Open Road Integrated Media. Yeah. You know, Jane Friedman's organization that was initially started kind of in that ebook mania, um, but she came at it from a really unique perspective as a senior executive coming out of traditional publishing. She saw a gap that was less about, oh, ebooks are the future, print's going to die, consumer demand. The gap she saw was a lot of publishers don't have the rights to these books mm. and they're not ready to take advantage of it. So that was the first magic of what Jane pulled off that typically doesn't get talked about. It was that knowledge of contracts and that white space that was opening up as eBooks were becoming big for all of these historical backlist titles that are consistent sellers in print that in some cases weren't available in eBook yet. And she pulled that off wonderfully. I think where I didn't initially like Open Road, at least her public uh, statements about they were going to kind of become the, the next big six. They were going to dismantle traditional publishing because they don't have to worry about inventory, blah, blah, blah. I think that was a lot of the tech required hyperbole yep. to go with it. But what was really fascinating was how quickly they pivoted to marketing being a core strength. And over the years, they've continued to double down on that side of the business to right now, I last I heard, a third of their revenue comes from marketing other publishers' books. Hmm. And in some cases, those publishers are signing the ebook rights over to Open Road because they understand Open Road's skill at marketing not only will benefit the ebooks, but that marketing is better than they can do and will benefit their print books. So it's not just, hey, here's a marketing agreement that we benefit from print and ebook. Some of their smaller publisher partners are like, look, take the ebook rights. We just are not able to do the, uh, right by them. And we recognize that your efforts will drive print sales of our books. So there's a lot of interesting business intelligence locked up in that mm, company yeah. that because they are not bestseller centric, because they're kind of off the uh, radar of most traditional media, they don't get the attention or coverage I think they deserve. But the, the way they've pivoted over the past couple of years, unlike a lot of tech companies that are pivoting from failure to failure, mm -hmm. they've pivoted from success to success. They've built out a nice consumer-facing operation that they never attempted to go for direct consumer sales. They went for direct-to-consumer engagement, continuing to push people out to other channels to purchase, which for me was always one of the, the smarter ways to go if you are going to be a broad general trade publisher. If you're niche, if you're focused in one area, then you definitely want that direct-to-consumer sales uh, channel as well. Yep. But an open road where you're kind of all over the place when it comes to category and topics and audiences... The approach they've taken, I think, is one of the most underrated success stories in publishing over the past 10 years. That's fantastic to hear. Thanks. Oh, I love that. And as we get towards wrapping up, I wanted to ask about poetry. Poetry has been a big part of my life, my own publishing life, but I rarely get to 
enjoy it much these days. And 20 years ago, you were organizing poetry events and running poetry organizations. Is that something you still get to be a part of? No, my uh, poetry days, it was interesting you talk about you know, my history of kind of supporting others. My foray into poetry started, A, with the most stereotypical mid-breakup, <laughs> hadn't uh, been writing in years, was a fan of the New Eurekan Poetry Cafe Slams, went to an open mic, got hooked on it, and for a couple of years was really active as a poet, um, engaged in the scene, started running a venue, a weekly reading myself. That was partly a response to a gap in the New York poetry scene where there were a lot of poets who were really into slam, mm. slam poetry and that competitive aspect, but felt boxed in by the format mm. and also wrote other work. And the New Eurekan wasn't always the best forum for that other work because it was so competition-centric. So when I started that venue, it was partly um, a place for me and a handful of my friends to like, hey, here's a spot we can come and read our non-slam stuff and build an audience around that. And that kind of turned into a community of its own that about two years in, I became less of a poet and more of a curator and host. And mm. in some ways, my own writing suffered as a result, but at the same time, I never regretted it because I really loved what I was doing, which was that community building, that providing a space for others. As a writer, I still got a lot out of it, mm. but it also kind of reinforced something that took a while over the years to really settle in on. When it comes to marketing, awful marketer of my own things, <laughs> but give me somebody else's thing that I'm really into, I go crazy on it and do things for it that I'd never even think to do for my own stuff. Yeah. So I, I'm very much a, you know, do as I say, not as I do, but in, in, in a positive way. Yeah. So poetry, that, that series ran for 16 years. I ran it for the first four. Friends of mine took it over and kept it going. I came back a few times over the years and we shut it down in 2014. And I, at that point, I'd come back for about two years, was re-engaged. But once that shut down, it was kind of closure on that poetry side of my life. Mm. I still have a lot of friends who remain active poets and are in the poetry scene and have gone on to great success. So I'm still engaged as a fan of their work. Um, but definitely at, at this point, poetry is on the periphery of my life, even though every now and then I get an itch to, do I have something to write? Or, hey, I haven't read a, you know, a, poetry, a good poetry book in a while. Let me pick up something that's not one of my friends. Yeah, I like to tell myself it's something that we can get back to when we're much older. We won't go out <laughs> of it. <laughs> so that's good. It'll always be there for us. It will. And since this is a podcast about making books, have you seen any books lately that you think were really well made? So I'm still uh, awkward to admit predominantly a print person. Yeah. Like I respect ebooks. I get there's an audience for it. Not for me. Same for audiobooks. My wife's a big audiobook listener, reader. They just don't work for me. You know, podcasts I'm good with, but long form books being read to me, I don't have the commute that uh, makes that work. So physical books to me are still a really valuable thing. And I, I think where I particularly love them is when a publisher makes that extra effort to create something special mm. and not just a commodity to, you know, have Amazon ship out. You know, books that can't leverage print on demand to me are the most exciting. So two that I pulled off my shelf, Prince's memoir, The Beautiful Ones, 
I thought it was just going to be a straightforward memoir. And as a Prince fan, that would have been good enough for me. Yeah. But this is a traditional hardcover sized coffee table book. The production value, the that is beautiful. The layouts and everything in this thing. This is an amazing book that could have just been a memoir and would have been great. There's an audience for Prince's memoir. They w- took that extra step to really make something that you want to own yeah. and not just borrow from the library to read for free in quotes. Yeah. <laughs> and then the other one, uh, my son got me this. The, it's Parasite, the movie. It is the, it's a graphic novel and storyboards. So it's not a traditional graphic novel. It's literally they, they took his storyboards, which are really detailed, and put it in a graphic novel format with his script. It's a keepsake mm. that you buy because you've got a real affinity for the work. And it's packaged in a really beautiful, impressive way that then also makes it worth the expensive price. Because that's the other thing. Books are expensive. Yeah. And we, we live in a world where there's a lot of demands for our disposable uh, income. And particularly when it comes to digital offerings. 10 years ago, you were competing with 99 cent games. 2020, you're competing with like 50 different streaming services mm-hmm. that are all $9.99 a month or more. And you know, <laughs> newspapers have successfully shifted to paid content. So if you want to stay on top of the news, you might have one or two uh, expensive newspaper subscriptions. So books really need to rethink that business model, either producing really valuable print objects that people want to own mm-hmm. or changing that digital business model to recognize this is good content. Nobody feels the need to own it. So they're going to get it from the library or through a subscription program. And you need to adjust your business model, not get mad at your partners and readers (laughs) for their changing behaviors. For sure. Oh, that's lovely. I'll look those books up and put links in the show notes because those look absolutely gorgeous. Awesome. Guy, thank you so much. I have got so much out of this conversation. It's been thoroughly enjoyable, and I really want to thank you again for taking the time. Well, thanks again for having me, and I appreciate the thoroughness in uh, what you went into. This was fun. And thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this, it would be such a help if you'd take a moment to share that with a friend or on social media. You'd be amazed at the effect that every tweet has on our downloads. So thank you for that, too. You can point others to howbooksaremade.com, where I'll also post links to things we talked about today. We're also adding transcripts of our episodes there now. How Books Are Made is supported by Electric Bookworks, where my team and I make books all day, every day, in sunny Cape Town, South Africa.